Good and welcome to another edition of Warrior Connection, the great Aretha Franklin in respect. She definitely earned the respect that she gathered in death, and it's wonderful to see her honored because it's an incredible woman and made incredible contributions. Well, this morning, we're back into September, and as I woke up and turned on the news this morning, all of a sudden, on the news on NBC was the New York Police and Fire Department guys, my guys, our guys, that responded to the tragedy of the World Trade Center, tried to do rescues, did a lot of rescues, and got sick, and they can't get care today. I want to repeat, as reported in NBC News, the New York Police and Fire Department officers, many from the Emergency Services Unit who I trained, went into the World Trade Center, are still unable to get medical care today while they keep continuing getting sick. Ray, what has happened to our nation? Uh, I don't know, Doug. I, I think they've lost patience with those who can't keep up, and what they do is they walk off. You know, uh, talked about reverse triage. I know you're going to be talking about that, but it's really when you eliminate some people who maybe are helpless in order to try to help people who are not so helpless. And, uh, you know, some people may look at that as it's a necessity and a terrible situation, like in the towers that day. But as a nation, as far as looking at people who are helpless, we tend to, uh, to eliminate them and just walk past them and say, well, you know, take care of yourself. And we're seeing for 17 years, since that, since that building went down, those two buildings went down, we've had victims. So really the number of uh, casualties that came out of those towers is not 3,000. It may be 10,000 by now. Uh, I don't know how many. It's astonishing because let's review what what happened in the past. First off, you know, from before Desert Storm and during Desert Storm, as a member of Bowers Raiders and our team training actually started at the University of Illinois under the now deceased police chief Paul Dowens. We put together what we called Medical Management of Chemical and Biological Casualties course. Obviously, we taught that in police and fire. We taught that at the University of Illinois Fire Service Institute in the early 80s. And then when Desert Storm started, as you know, and is totally documented, and Dr. Noll has this documented in his documentaries and in his publications, our team was activated and taught it at Desert Storm and all that, and we cleaned up the mess in Desert Storm, and everybody got sick. We now know that it's a 60% casualty rate, over 400,000 from Desert Storm. U.S. military alone are sick, and the civilian casualties are staggering. We came back and did all the teaching and training, and then in the late late 1990s, we were asked to provide together a civilian course for medical management chemical biological casualties. And this course was ordered by then-Colonel Bob Mashburn, who was a commandant at the U.S. Army Chemical School at Fort McClellan, Alabama, per the order of Major General Ralph Wooten, who was the general in charge of all this stuff. So a whole group of New York Police and Fire Department Emergency Services unit personnel came to Fort McClellan, and myself and Chip Chase and a few others actually provided the training, hands-on training, on chemical, biological, hazardous materials, explosive training to the New York Police and Fire Department Emergency Services Unit. 
obviously from that thing it went on to become the 120 city program and the Department of Justice program. So they, the what we call the Beltway Bandits or the individuals, the contractors, then took all the stuff we put together, repackaged it, and started selling it to the government. Well, from that stuff, at the same time, when we trained the New York Police and Fire Department, we were getting ready for the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. And so we trained all of that emergency response force, and we actually manned the emergency response force for chemical, biological explosives, and everything else for the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Well, along comes 2001, and we've got all these orders to invade these countries. The order to invade Afghanistan came from February 12, 1998, and the order and everything to plan to invade Iraq again had happened back in 95, I think is when we started writing the invasion plan. So they need to scare everybody. So lo and behold, what happened? 911 happened. Two aircraft absolutely hit the north and the south tower, but <clears throat> aircraft weren't the first events as we know today. And Ray, you've seen all his documents, you've talked to the individuals. Right. We do know that the first thing that happened with Willie Rodriguez, a hero of the World Trade Center, and I talked to him the other night, first explosives went off in sub-basement three and four. Filippi was brought out, and they were loading them on when the first aircraft hit. And then as totally documented in our play, 911, as totally documented in Life magazine, Life publication, the book on 911. Willie led the police and fire up in the stairwells to recover people, but what they had to do was reverse triage. In triage, you make a decision who goes first. In other words, you can only rescue those people that you're able to rescue given the amount of time. In other words, you have to optimize your limited resources, limited time, and limited capability. So we do know that there were people left in place, in a case in our play, as we wrote from people really there, people that were unable to walk down the stairwells were left in place in the World Trade Center where they were at. And they continued on up, and as we know, everything happened. Eventually they had noises and they had explosions four by four and brought it down. I mean, place explosives brought the World Trade Center down. The photographs and everything from that day show no fires or smoke or anything way up in the tower. You've seen those, correct, Ray? Yeah, that's true. You know, Doug, nobody expected those buildings to be compromised that day. That was the least thing in their minds. Well, those buildings should not have come down on their own, and so therefore, even the people in that triage, when they were putting them there, they knew they were going to get them down. And so it was not even a, even a fault that those buildings would come down like that. That was what really blew everybody's mind. The fire was not hot enough to melt the steel, and the building should not have tumbled like that. You know, and we know from the chemical analysis that thermite and thermate explosives definitely were used. I mean, there's no doubt at that, and you got all the explosive byproducts. So when you have all these explosions, and we've got depleted uranium missiles, that's confirmed in the video, the film taken that day to show the DU missile impact. And again, as the Army's DU project director and the expert and the other ones, there's no doubt about it what it is when it hits. You've seen these videos and these films, correct, Ray? Yeah. Yes, sir. You know, so we I know all it. this stuff has happened. Well, what we had to do in New York Police and Fire Department had to do with reverse triage. 
and they left some people in place and helped a whole lot others. So Willie Rodriguez and my friends from the police and fire department rescued an incredible number of people out of the tower that day before anything happened. But many people were left in place. And we actually have one photograph of individuals in place on the floor where the aircraft hit with no fire, trying to get down and yelling for help. That goes to prove that, you know, it wasn't that bad, but that's not what all happened. Well, what we do know is everybody got sick. Cancer rates have skyrocketed. We're looking at all kinds of respiratory problems. So the respiratory problems mirror exactly what we know as Gulf War illness, mirror exactly what's in the Department of Air Clinicians' guidance, mirror exactly what has happened with any of these complex hazard materials and explosive combinations. It's all there in front of it. It's not a he said, she said. It's all documented. And it's all there. And now this morning, this morning, the year is 2018. We're in September. The police and fire department are on TV saying, help us get medical care. Honor those that have died. They said there were like one dying a day almost. Not unusual. That's what's happening to the military too, isn't it? It is. Um it is, and it's, it's hard for anybody to get help. The government doesn't want to move backwards. They're, they're, they've moved on 17 years just like this, and even longer from the Gulf War, and they don't want to revisit a problem. And they know if they ever give in to, to one person, that will cause a steamroller effect, and all these 400,000 or more victims of this will be lined up for medical care. And so, Doug, they can't. They don't have the money to do it. And so, therefore, it is called acceptable losses. And that's what we have today. The police lieutenant that led the rescues there, and I've, obviously I know him and I work with him, and he sent me a letter, this is years ago, saying I need help, I need medical help. And the medical problems that are listed are absolutely staggering. You know, and they mirror exactly what we call Gulf War illness or hazardous materials exposures. And when you look at this stuff, as he tried, he's trying to get his own medical care, obviously they don't want to get it. They don't want to give it to him. They don't want to know. And so he has to fight for his medical care on a day-by-day basis without any help. You know, I, I taught these guys, and like I taught so many others, I responded myself, and it's not about Doug at all. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with how do you acknowledge the incredible toxic exposures from direct events, planned or unplanned, deliberate or undeliberate, that live God's environment totally trashed. True. Well, you know, today, Doug, we have weapons, but we have more weapons of mass destruction. And those weapons that were used on those uh, towers, they became very uh, mass destruction because that destruction has continued on all these years, just like in the Gulf War. And so today's technology and today's weaponry is different from any other time. And, you know, when you look at all the documentaries on 9-11, the Pentagon, the the plane out in Pennsylvania, Flight 77, I think it was. Um, all these things, I mean, there's so many questions behind it. And my wife knew nothing about anything uh, about the 9-11, uh, a lot of the questions. She just uh, she took it as it was, whatever was on the news, that's what she thought. 
And when she looked at these documentaries, it blew her out of the saddle. She could not get over that. Was the the questions are so blatant? I mean, they're right in your face, and it's it's like, how could this happen? Tell us, Doug, some of the some of the questions or some of the questions that the documentaries posed to which there is no answers. For instance, well, like the Pentagon. Look at the World Trade Center. We know from direct action, direct communication, the explosives took off into sub-basement three and four before the event. We do know that after those explosions, an aircraft hit the North Tower. And we also have total photographs and firsthand communication, video, and everything showing even after the aircraft hit up way up in the tower, individuals standing in the area of impact screaming for help, waving for help. And we have total photographs of no fire, no flames or smoke within the tower, uh, 40th floor and beyond, nothing there. Nothing there. Well, there were even questions about the type of aircraft that was used. Yeah, you've got questions again, whether they were or not, and everything comes down to it when all that happened. And I've got the direct footage. All of a sudden, within minutes, they're showing the pictures of these guys as the terrorists who did this stuff. You know, you've got everything else. And on the second tower of the second aircraft, the footage shows a direct depleted uranium missile impact on the tower before the aircraft hits it. We've got to remember all the work we did at the Nevada test site, what we did in Iraq and all over the place. DU has an absolutely incredible, unique signature. There's nothing like it. You've seen this video, Ray. You've seen the test videos. You've seen all the work we did. Right. And it shows a DU missile impact coming off the belly of the second aircraft before it hits the tower. And then all this stuff within minutes, these towers of incredible steel and concrete and everything else, reinforced steel and everything else, are going to come down in a few minutes from a normal fuel fire. Fuel fire will not get high enough temperature to create any problems and alter the steel. But then what we know, as the explosions happened floor by floor, and it was all brought down and brought down in dust, which means there was a massive explosion. Not just something heating and falling, because otherwise it would just broke up in chunks. So, Doug, one of the questions was, I think it was building four or five that they brought down, actually, because of the damage done to it from the uh, Twin Towers. But uh, they brought that building down. And when that they was started, Tower 7. And what's really funny is when you look at the video footage from that day, they claim, and we've got all this, claiming, well, Tower 7 came down. And it exploded and everything else, and they said it's already gone. But when you look in the, on the video footage and what they're showing, is still standing. And then that thing came down within minutes from place explosions, what we call an implosion. In other words, explosions were explosives were deliberately used to bring it down. Well, how long would it have taken to set that up, the explosions, Doug, in order to make it implode? How long would it take a demolition corporation or company or whatever? to put those in specific areas that it would implode on its own self. It would take weeks or a month to do that. Well, they didn't. They did it in hours, No, it's, it's not going to take any time at all. You and I, I'm not going to get into that. I won't discuss that. But it definitely can be done in just a few hours by a trained team knowing what they're doing and placing the explosives in specific pers- places. Okay. 
So, but we're not going to get into that. We know what happened. We know this is all transpiring. When we look at the Pentagon, okay, we talked to the individual over there, one of my best friends, very close friend of mine, and you've seen her documentary, you've seen her testimony. She was right there, just within feet of where the missile hit the tower. The six-foot fence was standing the next day. The aircraft didn't hit or tarry up the second and third floor. In other words, it literally went into a six-foot vertical space. There was no engine wreckage. You can look at this in the official Pentagon building performance report. And there's no wreckage on the lawn. The lawn was not damaged. And all the photos, all the videos we've got from everybody and the people were there. And my friends were brought over and lifted over the fence. And then my senior raider in the Army, in other words, the guy who evaluated my performance, performed medical care on outside the fence on the people brought out before the upper floors came down. No wreckage of any aircraft ever found. No engines ever found. No tail section. And when you lay an aircraft on the ground, the tail section would have been higher than the Pentagon is tall. Right. You can look at the Pentagon building performance report, and on page 32 it shows where the missile came out, the inner, and the outer ring came from the inner wall. A 12-foot, about a 10, 12-foot diameter hole. Right. No tail section, no engines, no nothing. The massive engines are going to tear in there, not going to break up. It was just ridiculous of what they showed us compared to what could must have been, have had to be. You know, and and when we found out right away, and and I just talked to the EPA official just a few minutes ago. I guess it's about ten or ten, maybe fifteen years ago. It's all blurred together now. We held an EPA conference on nine one one at the EPA headquarters in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, this is down in the southern part of Ohio. And at that time, we discussed all of the respiratory effects of it, all the hazards, all the DU munitions, everything else that all the police and the fire were need, required medical care. And we discussed that Christine Whitman, who had the EPA official at that time, had disregarded all of our recommendations and phone calls on that day to New York Police and Fire Department to get full respiratory and skin protection for everybody. I want to repeat, on the, that day when we did call the emergency service unit, the guys we trained and warned them and told them to get this stuff, it didn't happen. Of course, as was all planned, there isn't any protection that's going to work. We know that the respiratory protection given the military will not work. And the police and the fire, as we know from that day, there's no way they can ha- carry 70 pounds the Scott air packs up and all what we call bunker gear up the floors and all the stairs climbing 90 or 100 stories into a building or 40. So on that day when Willie Rodriguez and the other guys started climbing, they got only a few floors up where they couldn't go anymore, and they had them take off all of their bunker gear Scott air pack so they get up in the tower to do the rescues, get the people out. And they brought an incredible amount of people out to safety, but incredible, what, over well over 2,000, 3,000 died that day, plus yeah. all of my police and fire. <clears throat> I'm doing a uh, program on Sunday morning at a church uh, about 9-11, and um, 
You know, it's it's still a very fresh wound in the heart of Americans, even though it's been 17 years. It's it's kind of reopening all the time, and uh, it talks about some of the heroes uh, that came out of 9/11 because. Normally, in a traumatic situation, there are some people who stand up and put their lives on the route, you know, great risk to themselves in order to help other people. And a lot of these, a lot of these um, rescuers were were killed going in and out of that building, bringing you know people out of that place. So, <clears throat> and a lot of them died because they didn't expect those buildings to come down. Those firemen were trying to go up in those hallways, stairways, and when it gets to a certain point, the firemen have to pull back out of there. When it gets beyond their control, and but they they were up in those towers. They never thought that North Tower was going to come down. Well, and when I've talked to them since then, the ones that did survive, they had no idea. They were following the directions we taught them at Fort McClellan, Alabama, per Colonel Bob Mashburn and General Ralph Wooten, that Chip Chase and I taught them. I mean, that's a course we put together many years ago right here at the University of Illinois under Paul Dollinger, and then we did under for Bowers Raiders during Desert Storm, and we did under Dr. Connie Boatwright for the 1996 Atlanta Olympics and 120 City Program. But as you know, they're all dead, Ray. Our leaders are all dead from exposures that happened to them. And it goes back to the old adage, you know, ignore it and it will go away. And uh, I guess that will be the end result of it because we're all going to go away. And um, and so they, they allow it to continue on. They're not helping these uh, survivors, the ones that put their lives on the line out there every day trying to trying to find survivors or trying to recover bodies. or And they paid the price for it from the very beginning. They started having a lot of, um, you know, lung and breathing problems and respiratory problems and skin rashes and everything you could think of. And people say, well, you know, it's just keep working, keep working. So they stayed there. I mean, a lot of them were without a job, and they were still there every day trying to look for, trying to recover people. I mean, the contaminants don't go away after everything is down. So they are, the police and the fire and the rescue workers and recovery people that are all now sick and too many are dead. They work there without any respiratory skin protection day after day after day to clean up the rubble. We're talking about cleaning up horrific events. I mean, when we have the definition of a hero, all these New York police and fire department, Willie Rodriguez and all these guys that went in there, they're absolute heroes. You know, their names I know and I remember, and I've got pictures of them, and, you know, I, I live with this every day. Because all these guys died because they implemented what we taught and what we trained them and what we put together, which was correct to do. Right. That's what they're trained for. Well, Doug, a lot of them in those, uh, trying to recover that day had nothing but a, a cotton mask over their face and uh, safety glasses. I mean, they just threw on what they had, and they went in there looking for them, not realizing that there was a death sentence upon them, too. That's when heroes step up. They're just in there tearing everything apart, trying to find you. That's why they die. You know, Jesus said over in uh, John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no man than this, that a man would give his life for his friends. And the Lord said he was, he was our friend because he gave his life for us. But every time you see this happen, you see those people out there giving their lives 
for somebody else, and that's true heroes. Well, I mean, and, uh, with Bill and Bill and Willie both, they didn't have to go in there. They didn't have to do rescues. They made a conscious choice to go up there to bring them out, to bring their friends out. That's right. It's like, you know, Willie Rodriguez would have been killed that day, but he got there a little late, and instead of going up to the all the way up to the top for breakfast in the in the breakfast up in the top of the building, he just went to his office, and then everything took place immediately. I mean, God specifically gave a purpose to everybody in life. Willie saved everybody that day. He was the man with the master key. He is the person that led the police in the fire up through the towers to get to the rescues. And he took an incredible number of people in and out, as did many other police and fire department personnel. Well, Doug, there was um, one guy named Wells Remy uh, Crowther, and you might know the name better than I do. He was called the man with the red bandana. And when the towers were hit by those aircraft, I think it was the North Tower, he covered his mouth and nose with a red bandana while escorting many out of the building. He went back inside several times to find more victims with nothing but a bandana around his face. He died while he was looking for more victims. The towers fell on him, too. It was people like that that, you know, they didn't have any idea about the seriousness of that moment. They they had no clue that that building would ever come down. There's a modern building. That building was made for earthquakes and everything else. And who would have ever thought that building would come down? You know, Willie talks a sto- tells a story, and I've talked to him about this a lot, and we've held each other and we've cried together about a woman that he brought out of the tower and got her safely down to the ground, only to find out later that wreckage as it fell off of the tower once she was outside of the tower killed her. In other words, debris as it blew up on the top came down, fell down, and killed her after she had got out of the tower. Yeah. Well, the the fire department chaplain was killed on the ground by a body that that jumped from the tower. Um, So, I mean, people were dying out in the streets by debris and people falling on them. And those people in front of them either burning to death or jumping, they took the dump. So, you know, they've talked about some of the ones in the upper floors. Well, above the fire, they said the, the floor got so hot it was buckling and cooking them alive, and many of them chose to jump out those windows. It was a, you know, it was a terrible day. Uh, there was another one. Uh, her name was Maura Smith. She was an NYPD officer, and she was called the woman with the flashlight. She escorted hundreds of people out through the darkness of that tower while hollering, don't look down, keep moving. And she kept people moving. She died while she was leading groups out of that place in the darkness. The people you don't hear about a whole lot. And it was people who gave their lives for that. They said on this one report there was 2,996 people that originally died in that terror attack on 9-11, including the Pentagon and Pennsylvania. It was talking about each one of the planes. It was talking about the crew members and the the, uh, passengers of those planes, but all the victims on the ground and in the Pentagon that were killed by the explosions. So it's a terrific, horrific story. 
But we you need know, to remember. I look back and talking to the guy since and spending time, and I talked to Willie a long time the other night, they just simply saw a need to act, and they made a conscious decision to act with absolutely no concern for their health and safety. I mean, that's the definition of a hero. There wasn't anything unique or anything special. They just saw a need to act, and they act. Now, today when I talk to them and talk to these guys, and they're still screaming, and the guys I saw today were, oh, we need medical care. We can't get it. They're still dying every day. They did their job, and the government and the rest of the nation abandoned them. They walked away. And then the myth and the lies about what happened is still prevalent in order to avoid accountability and responsibility for the truth. That's true. And that's called abandonment. We talk about moral injury. And abandonment is one of the the primary reasons for moral injury, of where it hurts your conscience and hurts your heart. When you see people doing wrong when they should be doing right, and you know instinctively that what is right, they're avoiding it, they're not acknowledging it, and they're just hiding their heads in the sand. They don't want to hear it. And, Doug, you know many times, because you've been in many situations where you tried to bring things to light, it's almost like they stick their fingers in their ears and close their eyes and say, don't tell me, I don't want to know. That's the conscience of America today, that we have lost our conscience. And they don't care about people. They can't afford to. They'll lose their jobs if they stand up for anything. We see it all the time. PTSD definition, as we've discussed in this radio program and we've had the experts join us, is a normal reaction to a set of horrific events. And one thing, as you seek medical care, and it's in the newspaper today as a head editorial that they wanted to prescribe and get marijuana approved for prescription for PTSD and for pain. Why not a shot of liquor? Why not buy them a fifth of liquor and tell them go home and get rid of the pain, get rid of the memories, just sit there and enjoy life? Well, how many veterans, Vietnam veterans, and everybody else have drunk themselves into oblivion in order to try to get rid of that moral injury that's deep inside? And then all you have is, well, we're going to prescribe you some some medications, we're going to give you some psychotropic drugs, or as you said before, and we discussed it, and we've had the experts on our program as a co-host many times, you can't just talk this through and drug up everything else in your life as if, well, this had an impact. I mean, these guys at the police and the fire and the guys seeking medical care this morning on TV and my guys and Willie seeking medical care and the military, they did a job and all they need now is medical care and support. And we can't have another event happen like this again. But all as I pick up, there's no training, there's no response and no emergency services because all of us that became experts and did the training and taught this and put it together have now gone retired or died. And the leaders that we all served under when we did all this, the the colonels, the doctors, they're all dead, Ray. Yep. 
And the only thing they learned, Doug, was if you listen to them, was how to build a bigger building and a better building so they will never fall down again. That's the idea. It has nothing to do with people. It has to do with buildings. And so it's just like the medical marijuana and everything the VA is doing. If what they're doing is so great, why are the suicides so high? It's because people are running out of options. They run out of hope. The things they give them do not work. All it does is medicate them and tries to get their minds, and they say, think good thoughts, uh, take a little marijuana, take a little um, opioids or something, and you'll feel better. Call me in the morning. And that's their solution, Doug. Talk therapy and medications. It's not working. It's killing people. You know what I I, uh, I met him in a doctor's office. My wife was getting a needle or a shot for she had a pinched nerve in her back, and they were giving her a shot for it. Well, I saw this young guy had short hair, and he was with looked like his mother and two small children, and it turned out to be his mother. Um, and I got to talking to him, and I asked him, was he military? Yeah, I started talking to him. He said he'd been diagnosed with PTSD. You could tell he had a bad problem, a nervous problem. He was in there for something. I didn't know what he was for. I had a chance to talk to that guy about post-trauma and moral injury. I gave him a book, one of the books I'd written on, uh, you know, the never-ending war. And then uh, talked to him, talked to his mother while he was being in the doctor's room. And I, I got to, I, I to talking to the guy about suicide, about post-traumatic stress, and how it's a, a permanent uh, solution to a temporary problem, and it's a very destructive thing. I got an email last night from that guy, or yesterday, and two weeks later, he, he emailed me, and he thanked me so much for intervening in his life because he was contemplating suicide in that doctor's office, and I was able to talk with that guy and give him some common sense and some things that work, Doug, that way know we work. And I told him psychiatry and the medications were not the solution. It's not the answer. And the guy was just, he just, I wish I could read the email he sent me because he, he acted like it changed his life. He said, I've never been in, a, in anywhere in line and somebody would do more than open the door for me or say good morning. He said, you intervened in my life and you made a difference. That's where it's all at, Doug. What the government does sometimes, they do it on a mass scale. And it's about making you feel better temporarily, medicating you, getting you to open up and tell them some things, and, and they'll ask you questions. And what they're doing is they're digging up everything in your life, and you walk out more depressed than what you went in. And they prescribe you medications, anti-depression, and then they give you something to bring you back down, anti-anxiety. And the first thing you know, you're on a merry, uh, you know, like a merry-go-round. Of, of drugs and medications, and now he told me he was on the verge of losing his wife, and that was part of the thing that he's been fighting because he's been fighting, but he's never found an answer yet. It's destroyed his marriage. I've been able to help him with that too, and um, Doug, it, it, I'm telling you, they got the wrong answer for these things. I mean, we're looking, when I talk to the police and fire myself and my guys and everybody I work with, we did our job, and we do it again. We didn't consider our safety at that time, as Willie and all the police and fire that survived have said, they went and they did their job. I mean, just like you've referred to your book, The Never-Ending War, it's a love story, and these are love stories. 
but they're love stories with tragic endings because the individual responsible for cleaning up the environment, individuals responsible for medical care, have walked away and abandoned. And this morning when I'm sitting there and I'm getting ready to go my own medical care for my own exposures, for which I'm having a problem with, and here's my New York Police and Fire Department guy saying, we can't get medical care. We did our job. It just takes more than what they're giving us, Doug. And I was able to talk to that boy, and that man has committed his life to God just a short time back. And um, and that was the solution. That's part of the solution is turning it over to God in Jesus Christ, and you began to walk with him, and then you surround yourself by Christian counselors or someone who is very, uh, you know, knowledgeable in the Bible, because that's where the answers of life are. There's never a question in our lives that the Bible doesn't answer for us. At least it gives us a, a, like a compass. But we also need each other also. But people are surrounding themselves with people that don't care, and they're giving them half answers and half truths and everything in the world and making them feel better. I was at the VA yesterday and I was talking to the chaplain because we, him and I, he and I are friends, known him a long time. He told me they made him go to a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist was basically telling him religion was part of his problem. It's like, where do these answers come from? And so, uh, you know, we, we had a great discussion about that. And he asked me would I come in next month, and t- I think it's well, November, and teach a class to his students on um, post-traumatic stress and moral injury. Because, you know, we talked and he said, you've got answers, and they don't. So they're really undermining hurting people. And I'm sure they're using everything they think is good, but look at the results of it. It's destroying people's lives and suicide and everything else you can think of. Marriages, and um, so we've got to come up with something better. It goes far beyond this because of those horrific events that day for which we blame some other individuals. We invaded multiple nations. We have thoroughly, totally destroyed those nations, totally contaminated air, water, and soil. We left all kinds of families disrupted and homes totally destroyed. We've walked away from those nations after we contaminated. I mean, we used depleted uranium munitions, required to provide medical care, required to clean it up, and we've walked away from the nations that we trashed. And then we used them all over here in the States, Eglin Air Force Base, Ukulele Training Area, Hawaii, all over the place, at Fort Irwin. And we've walked away and left total contamination. And you've got all the manufacturing sites that are totally contaminated. I mean, you've got one of the main sites in the up there in Massachusetts where the, on the 18th of April of 75, hardly a man is left alive. And Paul Revere went in, and that town where our nation was born is totally contaminated with DU munitions residue. Well, it's not only destroying property and and Everything we can think of is, is destroying so many lives, and it has a, such a long-term effect. It doesn't go away for billions of years, and it sits there, and it contaminates everybody who goes near it or on it. Or Every time a dust storm kicks up over the Middle East, people get affected even more and more and more. 
But even in, in America, with some of our target rangers in the military, they're using that stuff, and people are sick, and they don't know why. And they can't find any answers, and they can't find any help. And it's totally bogus, but, I mean, it's still affecting so many lives, Doug. It, it's, it's unbelievable. We tried to get Vieques, Puerto Rico cleaned up. We tried to get Hawaii cleaned up. I got an individual right now. Uh, all kinds of people that are sick from the contamination of Hawaii are seeking medical care. Literally, help us. Give us the information. Well, you know, Dr. Gary Nolan, his documentaries, all his publications, all the stuff we've done, we've shared it with all of them. But you can't, you've shared the information, but you can't translate it into medical care. It hurts so deep in the soul when you see the New York Police and Fire Department who did their job, which was required because of stupidity and an action that wasn't necessary, and they can't get medical care. They gave their lives to save others, and those responsible have now walked away. What does it do, Doug, to the ones who are serving today that know that they look around, they find out? I've often said, you go if somebody today was contemplating going into the military, and they were to go into a VA hospital, they would probably they would probably not join. Them. If they saw the veterans who are suffering today, and with the complaints that they have constantly, they find out they're not getting medical help. It would really turn the military away from serving or, or, you know, the length of time they spend in the military. You know, we need to separate this out because we've got, and through history, we've got only a small fraction are actually wounded in action. In other words, their wounds are a direct result of enemy combat activity. The majority of the casualties are what we call disease and non-battle injury. And since Vietnam, with Agent Orange and everything sells since then, with the chemical and the biological stuff and the weaponized anthrax that we gave to Iraq, the nerve agents we gave to Iraq, we shipped all over. The West Nile virus, that was a, an Army biological weapon that we did ship to Iraq and then got released off of Plum Island into Central Park in New York and has marched right across the nation, affecting everybody. God has got to be angry. <laughs> We're destroying this earth. Environment, everything. I mean, we talk so much, people are talking about the weather, the climate, everything is changing, it's changing, it's changing, crops are failing. Um, and Doug, it's, it's like there's an answer. But people don't want to dig far enough to even find it. I don't know if you can change it at this point because there's so much damage being done. How do you how do you turn it around, Doug? I wish I had the answer. I mean, we're trying. Doctor Noel and all the others have tried. Joyce Riley tried. Paul Lyons tried. Doctor Connie Boatwright tried. Colonel Doctor Andres Carnegie Both tried. Colonel Doctor Thomas Little tried. And the whole bunch from the 144th that worked for me to clean up the DU mess during Desert Storm tried. 
That's unsung heroes. They have died abandoned. I mean, Paul Lyons lost all hope when he asked for direct medical care and he had the information necessary to get the care. We have the clinician's guidance that are still hidden by the VA from not only the patients, but from the practitioners. We have the Zumwalt report from Agent Orange, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt wrote wrote on the horrific effects of Agent Orange and the fact that the health effects were known and deliberately ignored. It is still hidden from the VA physicians or even outside physicians. When I got it for outside care authorized by the VA and said, send these reports to my outside doctor, please. They're your reports so that they will know how to provide me good care. Well, they haven't done it and they're not going to. And you wonder why. I mean, how many times you had doors closed in your face, Doug? How many times? I mean, you're continually trying. I, I try. And no one seems to be listening sometimes. And you if they feel do like listen, Don Quixote because you try to tell the truth, but then you come back with individuals who want the truth hidden, and then the direct retaliation and direct lies and everything else. It's sort of like, you know, when I try to get all the information directly out on the contamination at Schnoot Air Force Base, from trichloroethylene, the firefighting foams from the NBC work we did, from the Agent Orange, all confirmed in the Schnoot Air Force Base ATSDR report. Well, I was promptly thrown, jumped on, thrown to the ground, and taken out of the bu- out of the room, and then taken out of the building, forced to leave, and the information never presented. You know what it's like to have some of your best friends turn on you? Oh, yeah. Well, see, Doug, I mean, I I think about this all the time, and I think about people, and I look at people, and I feel like when you're looking at people, you're seeing people who have been abandoned by people. But I was telling this guy that, I'm going to read the email in just a second, uh, but I sent him one back, and I told him, I said, the idea of serving Jesus Christ is that he has walked this way before, he has suffered abandonment, he was ridiculed, he was lost his friends, he did. And that's the point of God. The Lord says, I've walked this way before. If you'll walk with me, I'll, I'll walk you through this stuff. Because he is the example for us to be able to more or less hold his hand as he holds our hand. Because if we don't, Doug, we are abandoned and nobody cares about it. The Lord said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And we can we can trust that. He's the only one that's lived it. And so that's why we're so dependent on it. Can I read this email? This is what the guy sent me. He said his name was Matthew and his last name. But he said, we had met a couple of weeks ago while at pain management clinic in Newbern. He said, I wanted to thank you for your words of encouragement, the time you spent with my mother and I, and the copy of your book. He said, I don't know if, you're, if my mother told you about me. It's about PTSD. He's been struggling. But also, he said, just a couple of days before meeting you, my wife of 11 years had told me she doesn't love me anymore, which is the result of post-traumatic stress, and she wants a divorce. I had just renewed a stagnant relationship with Christ just a week or two before that. The thought of losing my family had made me very emotional. Many thoughts were going through my mind, some anger toward God, some were hopelessness and feeling like maybe they would be better off if I wasn't around. He's talking about suicide. Um, 
He says, not necessarily killing myself openly, but he said, maybe a tragic accident might actually be a good thing because at least then I knew my family would be taken care of financially with life insurance, and I wouldn't have to feel unbearable pain. I have been praying constantly for God to give me strength to make me through this hard time I'm in and to show me some sort of sign. Then later that day, I met you. He said, meeting you and seeing how God works through other Christians to answer prayers at a perfect time has given me much-needed strength. My mother told me you sat and talked with her for most of the time I was with the doctor. Then she showed me the signed book. I was truly moved by your kindness. My, in my life, I don't believe I've ever seen a stranger do more than say hello or hold the door open. You have set quite an example of how God wants to help us, encourage each other, and spread his word. I feel honored to have met another Marine and a man of God like you. Now, that's a great honor, Doug. I don't know about all of it's true, but we ought to show some care about each other. If they're not going to help us, we need to help each other. And that's where we become an extension of God's hand. Because he touches us, and then we touch somebody else. You talk about people that's given their lives for people. Um, you know, you, you called their names out, and you're one of them, and I'm one of them, hopefully. But it's people who stand up when nobody else wants to stand up. I remember hearing a preacher say about the three Hebrew boys that stood up when everybody was bowing down, and it said the, the, um, when the people bowed down, it looked like the, the taller they stood up. And that's the way it works for heroes. Heroes are people who I don't believe they think about it. I don't believe they're trying to be a hero. They're not thinking about doing heroic things. But in a moment of tragedy, they stand up and they go in. I've noticed before in tragedy and combat, some people will run away from the combat and some people will run into the combat. It's just a time to stand up. And this is a good hour for people to stand up. All these victims... Stand up. That's what we need to do. We need to raise our voices. We need to put the votes out. We need to do something to stand up against, against this tidal wave of no care. People don't care. We ought to make them care. And so I wish the Gulf War veterans would, would come together and stand out there and scream at the White House or scream at Congress and Senate. I wish people would stand up for a change and demand that somebody listens. And I, I, I think that would be probably a good answer, Doug. Well, Dr. Gary Noah proposed, and you were listening to him over a year ago, that they needed all the veterans to get together and call for an end to this and just provide medical care as required. But the costs are astronomical. You know, we have to look, and we're running out of time here, but I'd like to read this. It goes back, and this kind of defines my life and defines your life and defines all these other individuals we've talked about because they've seen something they had to get doing. And at the end of your life, and I don't know who wrote this, but I was sent it to, it's called My Quilt. As I faced my maker at the last judgment, I knelt before the Lord along with all the other souls. Before each of us laid our lives like squares of a quilt in many piles. An angel sat before each of us sewing our quilts squares together in a tapestry that is our life. But as my angel took each piece of cloth off the pile, I noticed how ragged and empty each of the squares were. They were filled with giant holes. Each square was labeled with a part of my life that had been difficult, the challenges, the temptations I faced within everyday life. I saw hardships that I endured, which were the largest holes of all. I glanced around me, 
No one else had set squares. Other than a tiny hole here or there, the other tapestries were filled with rich color and bright hues of worldly fortune. I gazed upon my own life and disheartened. My angel was sewing together ragged pieces of cloth together, threadbare and empty like binding air. Finally the time came when each life was displayed, held up to the light, the scrutiny of truth. The others rose, each in turn, holding up their tapestries. So filled their lives had been. My angel looked upon me and nodded for me to rise. My gaze dropped to the ground in shame. I hadn't hauled all the earthly fortunes. I had love in my life and laughter. But there were also trials and illness and death and false calculations that took from me my world as I knew it. I had to start over many times. I often struggled with temptation to quit, only to somehow muster the strength to pick up and begin again. I spent many nights on my knees in prayer asking for help and guidance in my life. I had been often held up to ridicule, which I endured painfully, each time offering up to the Father in hope that I would not melt within my skin beneath the judgment gaze who though who unfairly judged me. And now I had to face the truth. My life was what it was, and I had accepted for what it was. I rose and I slowly lifted the combined squares of my life to the light. An all-filled gas filled the air. I gazed around at the others who stared at me with wide eyes. Then I looked upon the tapestry before me. Light flooded the many holes, creating an image, the face of Christ. Then our Lord stood before me, and with warmth and love in his eyes, he said, Every time you gave your life to me, it became my life, my hardships, and my struggles. Each point of light in your life is when you stepped aside and let me shine through until there was more of me than there was more than you. May all our quilts be threadbare and worn and allowing Christ to shine through. And then the author wrote, Please share this with someone you love. Care about even someone who needs Jesus in their heart. They may scoff, but at least the seed has been planted, and God will do the rest. May God bless you today and forever. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Doug, in my book, I talked about heroes, and I said they weren't wild-eyed individuals that run into a machine gun or something to to prove a point to themselves or whatever. It's usually a very scared individual that does not want to die, but he suddenly realizes if somebody doesn't do something, you're all going to perish. And so they get up, and they face the situation. It's like firemen running into a building. They would choose not to do that. But because lives are on the line, they offer their lives. They don't want to die. They're going to fight. They're going to fight for their lives. But at this particular moment, their li- the other life is more valuable than their own. And so we see that every day: police officers, firemen, military. It's just, and I, I believe it comes a time in our lives as individuals, we have to stand up for something. We have to quit being so. Uh, quiet and letting the world and letting politics and all these other things go unanswered because they're destroying the population. We're the ones that are getting hit by this thing. When our president gets up and and mocks people, laughs people, calls them names, cusses at them, that that rivets, rivets all the way through society. Everybody hears that. And if you're not careful, they'll start repeating the same things. I've seen that in local newspapers where people were just calling each other names and so we got to quit that mess. Somebody's got to stand up and say, "Keep your mouth shut." You know, if you can't say something good, keep your mouth shut. 
that's what my mama used to tell us anyway. But um, it's time for some people to stand up, all of us. We saw the police and the fire and the police and fire on TV this morning. They did their job. They got up that morning and they had no idea their life would be transformed for the rest of eternity. They took off and went to work with no idea, no thought that they were either going to die or they were going to get sick and they would have to fight all these years later for medical care. They were real simple heroes that just did their job. And now, as verified on NBC News this morning, and as we've talked about with millions of veterans, they've lost all hope because those responsible have just walked away. They've been abandoned. Tell the future, Ray. Where does the future go if we don't fix it now? (laughs) There won't be anybody left. I mean, we're losing caring people anyway. I talked to a man this morning. He's a contractor. He said he can't find anybody with any kind of worth ethics. He said he's 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 had seven, eight people recently. He hired and had to let them go because they don't know how to work and they don't. They just lost all the ethics of, of what is right and how to give a man a good job for a good pay. And we're living in a generation like that. But with some of us, I mean, we still understand those things. So it's time to pass it on. God bless you, Ray. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Next week, we'll have another warrior, a real warrior, another American hero talk about his life and how he has gone on to make it wonderful after the fact. God bless you, and thank you. New York Police and Fire Department, we love you. We hope you get the care you need. We'll keep trying to help you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Doug.